Hello. Good morning, sir. How are you? Good morning, Dan. How are you? Pretty good. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. That's right. Yes. It is a new year. <laughs> I would like to, uh, based on the request of several of our listeners, wanted to go over what your New Year's resolutions were for 2016. Is that a thing you want to do? <laughs> go over my resolutions? Yeah, what are they? I know you oh, usually let me check here. I got, I got famously... So I have a big one you always announce each year. 37, 38, 39. Yeah, um, I guess, I mean, how long you have today? I mean, whatever, you know, whatever you want to do with your show. Uh, this is going to be the year everything changes for me, Dan. Yeah? Oh, yeah. What yeah, you got? Yeah. What you got going? Uh, I'm going to stop eating foods that have vowels in the name. <laughs> uh, I'm going to try to walk on one leg more often. Uh-huh. I'm going to count my blessings. Uh-huh. I'm going to throw away more water. Uh, I'm going to walk on cars instead of uh, ride in them. Uh, um, I'm, I'm going to achieve unassisted flight. Uh, let's see. Did I mention I'm not going to eat uh, food with uh, vowels? Vowels, yeah, because yeah, that causes vowel movements. Just mind mind uh, your, your fuel units. What, where is that from? I didn't recognize that reference. That's that Ty Lopez thing. What that mean? He's the guy who talks about his Lambos and his books and uh, gives oh you a tour of God. his house. And Is that the video I posted? You posted that, and I, I discovered the joy of Ty Lopez uh, way back uh, in probably no- <laughs> November. Oh, okay. I kept it to I, myself. Okay, yes. Okay. This so what, a what dirty little talk- secret. <laughs> Here's all I know. All I know is that somebody I follow on Tumblr posted a heavily edited and like, um, I don't know what you'd call it. Like improved, yeah, heavily <laughs> edited and screwed up video of a man. I I, I guess he's trying to be motivational. He's yes. talking about his Lamb his Lamborghinis and money. How money is fuel units, right? And uh, it was kind of like what I imagine watching it was what I imagine it's like to drink a lot of cough syrup. <laughs> And so what you're telling me is that this guy's uh, like a known person. Yes, he is. His name he, is Ty Lambo. Is that his name? Ty Lambo. Ty Lambo. <laughs> and he, now, uh, yeah. And, uh, but he does this. T-Y, he does. Ty, like Tyler Lambo. T-A-I. <laughs> Lopez. Oh, all right. Ty Lambo. Yeah. And uh, he's in the Hollywood Hills. Yep. And he's got a Lambo. Burns fuel units. TEDx talk. Uh-huh. Started with forty seven dollars on yep. his sitting on his couch in his trailer or what have you down by the river down by the river and now he bumped, uh, so he bumped into a mentor Merlin <laughs> okay so have you seen the video so first of all so okay so this is like a YouTube sensation I don't know I don't know where his his thing is but he he's got sixty seven steps Merlin. Okay, well, see, all I know is that that one crunked up video that I've seen. I don't know anything about Ty Lambo's actual body of work. <laughs> no, nobody does. No one does. Truly, it, do you think it's a joke? No, it's real, and you gotta pay him. You gotta pay him some money to get the secrets. But when once you get the secrets, then you get fuel units. You get Lambos. You get books. You can read a book a day, like him. He had to get more Lambos to put his books in in the Hollywood Hills. <laughs> I don't know if we want to instruct our listeners to pause the show and go study up on Ty, Lam- Ty Lambo board. <laughs> Can we just move on? But it's, well, it's a, uh, it's a rat hole, as it. you say. Yeah, let me see if I can find it here. Yeah, um, uh, yeah I, I, I should... Compelling. Who, 
Oh, here it is. Oh, yeah. Oh, gosh. I haven't posted much lately. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I got it from uh, Ted from the internet is where I got it from. <laughs> um, yeah, you, want, you want to play it for people? I don't know if it's the same without seeing the visual. No, I think they need to see the visual because he, we'll put it in the show notes. The show notes can be found. 5by5.tv slash B is in brethren. Two is in the number. W is in world slash 253. I'll put I'll put a bunch of links in there. It's something that I think it you could play the audio of it, but it's like you could you could play the audio of Force Awakens. It wouldn't be the same thing. You got you've got to experience it in IMAX 3D. Yeah, Daisy Ridley still wouldn't get a toy. <laughs> I, uh, uh, I, <laughs> this um, <laughs> so uh, <laughs> what happened there? What was that all about? Uh, actually. Well, I'll tell you what happened. I'll tell you what happened. Well, first of all, yeah, so go watch Ty Lambeau uh, in the Hollywood Hills. Uh-huh. He just wants you to know um, the most important thing is that uh, dreams are still possible. Right. Right. He's got his Lambeau. Oh, my God. I hate the internet so much, Dan. Yeah. I, um, no, I mean, I, 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 here's, my, here's my position. My position is I really enjoyed The Force Awakens, um, even as it kind of drove me crazy. Parts of it made me a little bit nuts. I, I've made my peace with it, I think. And I, but, but the overriding thing I, <clears throat> excuse me, the overriding thing I felt as I walked out of the theater was that Daisy Ridley's role as Ray. Yeah. And to a just slightly lesser extent, John Boyega's part as Finn. I mean, the best parts of the movie were those three in BB-8. Oh, yeah. I think. I mean, that, if you took out what in particular Daisy Ridley brought to that movie, that particular woman, that actress in that role, if you took her out of that movie, that would have been a, like an okay, good adventure movie. But having her in it, she's made the soul that, of the movie. She made that movie really, really, really good. And I'm not even getting into the deeper issue of like, how cool is it that like the star, the really the star of, of this movie is this young woman who has not been in any other major things. But uh, the facts and evidence are that, she, in my personal opinion, she was the best thing in the movie. And when I say she was the best thing in the movie, I'm not a dummy. I realize that means that, like, you know, the casting director did a, did a good job. The the writers did a good did a great job. The special effects people and costume people and everything people, the training people, like, you know, I'm not about to say that like she just showed up on the set one day and and was perfect. But like she made that movie good in my eyes. And um, I, on a purely practical level, it was really frustrating to me as Christmas was coming up to find things that I, I, I wanted to buy stuff. Like, I didn't buy anything on Force Day. That's weird. I hadn't seen the movie. Why would I? Yeah. You know, that's weird. But um, no, I wanted to buy some uh, Ray stuff, kind of for my daughter, but mostly for me. Like, I wanted to get some cool Star Wars stuff of the, the new characters. And I thought, oh, you know, I'll like the way I buy these Marvel characters to have around the office. I thought I'd get like a cool Ray thing. And, like, my fantasy was, I would love to find, my favorite image in the entire movie is, and I don't think this is a spoiler, uh, it's kind of, I found the closest image I could and made it the header on my Twitter page. It's when she, we realized that she lives inside of, a, of an old AT-AT, and she's sitting there eating her portions, like, by the foot of an AT-AT. Yeah. And there's the scene of her, and she's like, she's got this horrible life, this terrible life. She's left alone, her family has left her alone on this desolate pl- planet. She scavenges, like... Uh, old technology and sells it for crappy food and it's her just happily eating her meal and she puts on a um a rebel like fighter pilot helmet mm-hmm. that she's found like a kid like a little kid and she's just sitting there eat, eating her uh, half portion of like uh, disco microwave bread and like it was i don't know it was just such a gorgeous perfect image that i think arguably encapsulates 
why this movie was successful and why she in particular made it successful, which was it felt a little bit like in the same way as with Mark Hamill in the original, we could put ourselves as fans in that movie. Oh, yeah. Right. We could see like she's it's funny because it was almost like there's so much of this movie was in a way a nod to the old movies, if not a remake in some ways. It was just so great. And I was like, oh, it's so perfect. I love that image. I would love to find like a figure of her sitting there uh, eating her her quarter portion with the helmet on. And the truth is, uh, at Target, at Disney, at the Disney store, I mean, half of the store is princess stuff. There's a lot of Star Wars stuff. So like, if you want a Kylo Ren, you're good to go. Even, I have to say, happily, if you want to get a Finn, like, you're good to go. Um, I, there might have been, like, one of those bobbleheads of her, but there was no... Oh, and you could get a costume of her. Like, there was one rack that had, like, little costume, jammy-style costumes. But, no, it was it was really odd to me. I was bummed that, like, there was no figures of her in there. And so, like, you know, I'm, I'm one of the many people that found that a little frustrating, not just politically, but practically. It's like, what, what are you guys thinking? This is so weird. And so, of course, now that's led to this much bigger thing where the entire Internet is explaining to people like me why that is. Why it is that she was paid less than a lot of the other people and why it is there's so few figures of her. And so that, that's frustrating. And this, this just points out how uh, pathetically ignorant we, for wondering this, are of the toy industry and the movie industry and showbiz in general and marketing in general. And it translates into that, right? Yeah. 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 I mean, that's kind of the joke, the second joke, but you know, it's, it's also that it, it, it really, uh, I, and I will make this a little political for a minute is it really makes me, uh, it makes me realize my place of privilege because for a week and a half, I get to realize what it feels like to be a woman on the internet. Um, in the sense that whatever it is you have to say as just an opinion about a thing, like so many people come out of the woodwork to explain either why you feel that way, to explain explain how you could do it differently, or to explain this incredibly blindingly obvious fact in the world that explains why what you feel is not legitimate. And so I, I'm not going to begin to say that, like you know, I go through what a woman goes through every day. But it was it was very educational and enlightening for me because I felt that frustration of going, "Hey, you know, stop explaining things to me. Stop explaining. Like I'm I'm telling you a thing that I feel that I think is a thing in the world. And like, could you please stop trying to explain these things to me? Because I know I have the same set of facts that you do. I can go to Box Office Mojo. I can go to IMDb. I can read the internet. I understand a little bit about how the world works too. But it's it I. Uh, so for a moment, making this not about Star Wars, I realize how galling it must be to have your entire worldview, if you choose to share even like a little bit of your worldview, how much people will go out of their way to come explain to you why that worldview is wrong because it's not theirs. So that's a, that's a, that's the, that's a depressing thing. And I, I, I do realize I'm in a position of true privilege that I don't have to face that all the time. I'm used to that with computer stuff because computer people are idiots, but like, you know, now I, with the, with the civilians out there, you know, it's uh, eh, it's just an interesting thing. And fr- What's, and your feeling? What's your feeling on it? Well, I mean, it, just to go back to your initial comment on the movie, I thought it was great too. I went into it, you know, trying to avoid anything that would spoil it. Just having seen a co- you know, the, the, the trailer and feeling like that was enough. And then, you know, cause I knew I wasn't going to see it for a day or so after the rest of the world kind of unplugging from the internet. So I went into it very much, not sure what to expect. And the thing that just impressed me the most, I loved the way that, that you said it, but I, I commented too that she really was the soul of that movie. And she completely made 
that movie and she made it in a way that the prequels I was never able to connect with any of the prequels. I mean, it was fun to see R2 flying around, but like there really wasn't anything to connect with. And for me as a kid growing up in the seventies, watching star Wars on the big screen, the first movie that I ever saw in the theater, maybe the first movie I ever saw. I don't know. I mean, I was four or five years old when I saw it Mm -hmm. and, and seeing that movie and connecting so much with, I was too young to connect with Luke's sort of angst of being stuck, you know, on, on this essentially desert planet with his aunt and uncle. And like, you know, his friends are all getting to go somewhere cool and he's not getting to go anywhere cool. And he wants to go, but he's got to stay longer and he's got his obligation. Like, I was too young to connect to that stuff. Uh, but I still connected to the, to the sense of like being a young kid and wanting adventure and, you know, loving the droids in the movie and kind of being able to say, you know, I none of none of my uncles are cool and have lightsabers, but like my uncles have this kind of cool history and this they did stuff and like what did they do? You don't really know. They seem like this old dude now. You know, so I was like able to connect with all of these things, and 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 of course for me in the prequels, there wasn't anything to connect to. I didn't, so even though I was much older when I saw those. And my kid had kind of the same response when he saw those. But this new movie gives you someone to connect to who's, you know, you're, you're, for me, as like a 40-something dude, like you're saying, I, we have no idea what, it, what it's like. But at the same time, like still th- there's this soul of this movie who's just a completely lovely person that you, you connect with and you understand. And yet they're in this world that's very familiar. If you've seen the other movies, I just think it's so well executed. This was such a neat opportunity for the folks behind star Wars to say, you know what we do understand marketing and we do understand the toy business and the Hollywood business. And guess what? We're still going to make these toys that are really great. And you are going to be able to play as this amazing character in every game that comes out. And you know what? If people choose to play as uh, Kylo Ren instead, fine. Go ahead and play as Kylo Ren. You know what I mean? But like, yeah. th- this should be a choice, and we're gonna we're going to make a statement not only by having this amazing character in the movie, but by going the next step and and putting her everywhere else. Yeah, and I mean, we're yeah. both we both have daughters, and you know, at at four, my daughter's probably a little too young to really get it, but. The next movie that comes out, she's definitely going to be into it. And I sure hope that when she wants to go and get those figures, they'll, they'll be around, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we should table a discussion of too much of the movie until it's been out a little bit longer. Yeah. Because, um, I mean, you know, I, I think, I don't know. First of all, I think it's been talked about enough for, for the this beginning period. But, yeah, I mean, I, I'd love to talk about it more. My, to your point, gosh, a lot to say. I mean, you know, it's I, I'm one of those people that, you know, Star Wars was my favorite movie. The first Star Wars movie was my favorite movie for like, you know, years and years. Even if there were movies that I liked more as I grew up and even went to college, I would still always tell you that you know, Star Wars was my favorite movie because it was like the most important movie. It was, you know, it was like the, the basis for so much of how I thought about stuff. It was just all I wanted to talk about and think about and do. Um, and I think, you know, maybe some of the conventional wisdom, which may be neither conventional nor wise, was that one problem with the prequels that was that it really, it highlighted something that a lot of Star Wars fans had been concerned about or worried about for a long time, which was, it was like, you had to wonder how much, especially the first two Star Wars movies, 
what, you know, in particular George Lucas's role was in making what, how much was George Lucas responsible for in those movies that made it the stuff that we loved in those movies? Yeah. And I'm not trying to take anything away from the guy, except, except to say that when those, you know, and there've been concerns all along the way, like after he did the special or the, the re-releases in the nineties with, you know, the changes in it and stuff like that. Um, it, it caused the suspicion of going like, well, I wonder if, First of all, he has the same tastes that we do. Like we like we like this thing that came out that has his name on it, even though we know that hundreds of other people also worked on it. But like, does he love the same stuff that we love? Mm-hmm. And and like, hmm, I wonder, like, if he understands like what it is that we really like about these movies, and and really maybe as importantly, like whether that matters to him. Um, because it was almost more like he was rearranging, you know, ribbons and trophies on his fireplace rather than trying to make something that would be really appealing. And then, you know, the problem is then that the prequels really, you know, took that to the next level of like, wow, this is, we, we're not here to watch puppets have meetings, you know? <laughs> and so, like, for all the, you know, uh, mm, trade wars there are. <laughs> Although I, I love Yoda's tiny chair. I love that he gets a tiny little chair to sit on. <laughs> but you know, I, I, I came to enjoy those movies because my daughter enjoyed them. <clears throat> and, uh, but anyway, I'm not saying anything that a million people haven't already said. But, you know, the, the, the thing about this movie that's wonderful and frustrating is like, you know, I just can't even imagine what the team behind that movie, what, you know, first of all, just the audience trying to please all these morons who love Star Wars and have very specific ideas about what should happen. What about people who love the expanded universe? Oh, you're not going to include the expanded universe? Oh my gosh. Well, hey, you know what? I like the prequels. Why aren't you including that in this continuity and da 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 da? And, um, but then especially think about the Disney basically coming to them and saying, like, hey, this is the money we're putting into this. They're going to build a park. Like, there's going to be, like, a Star Wars theme park. Like, this is the holiday season will be coming up. There must have been such an extraordinary amount of pressure. Uh, from so many people to make this movie a certain way. And I think that's arguably maybe one of the most amazing things is that it's not a complete success, but it couldn't be a complete success. I mean, they talk about the four quadrant film, right? The the idea of a film, I should look that up for the show notes, but the idea of a film that hits the four quadrants, you know, um, and this is like, this has got to be like a 12 quadrant film. This this film is supposed to be for literally everybody. It's like, how could that ever be great? Mm -hmm. But I don't know. It's, I, 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 a couple a couple feelings that a lot of people had that I think I agree with. The second and very minor one is I wish there were more new cool vehicles <laughs> and spaceships. Mm-hmm. Not, not a huge deal. But the, prime, the first thing a lot of people said was, I loved it so much when I was in the theater. It's only when I went home from this movie and thought about it that it started to drive me nuts. <laughs> right. <laughs> and that's when I started thinking, hey, that really was a lot like the cantina. And, yeah. Anyway, we should, we should maybe table it. But anyway... But the point about, you know, uh, this has nothing to do with going to work, but, um, the, 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 the thing that's, the thing that I, I don't know, I, I feel like I'm spared so much of the nastiest stuff on the internet because first of all, I don't seek it out. And second of all, I'm fortunate enough that I don't attract the worst elements of that stuff mostly, but also like uh, to use that word of uh, hopefully a final time, uh, I, I do have a certain amount of privilege and, you know, privilege is when you get to act like things are going well for you because of what you did rather than like how you were born. And so, you know, I am, I'm aware of that. And it's only when like I uh, unintentionally express some point of view that, you know, disagrees with, uh, some, you know, strongly held contingent that, and it doesn't even happen that much. And I'm actually not that mad about it. It's just funny. The long trickle of this, of people coming in explaining to me how Hollywood works. And it's like, yeah, I, I get that. But like, you know, that <laughs> it's still, it, it's a, it's an interesting, um, 
an interesting glimpse into what it must be like to be somebody who actually has extremely important things to say. Uh, and then would be constantly, it's one thing for me to have to put up with a bunch of dinglings who want to explain why Daisy really made $100,000 from this movie. And then it's another thing to be somebody whose whole uh, identity and life and uh, political position and like viability as a player in the body politic is constantly being re-explained by strangers on the internet. I can't even imagine how frustrating that must be. I mean, I, I oh, and by the way, I did, I put the four quadrant, uh, I hadn't heard that before. Oh, yeah? In the movie industry, a four-quadrant movie is one which appeals to all four major demographic quadrants of the movie-going audience, male and female, both male and female, and both over and under 25. Mm-hmm. Well, that's depressing. That's a, that's a depressing way to start the year. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I thought, I thought it was good. I thought it was good. But, you know, it does, you know, I mean, and I don't mean to make this into the topic because we have lots of thought leaders to talk about this week. <laughs> um, but, uh, but it does, it is... I it does make me think a lot more about how strangers communicate with each other on the internet, and it's because uh, it's not something that I do a whole lot. And when I do uh, talk to strangers or get talked to by strangers, it's generally pretty friendly, and it starts out usually pretty positive. Um, but it, it is it's it does make me rethink something that's become an elephant in the room, which is. So, like, right now I'm looking at probably the most famous, justifiably most famous uh, XKCD comic. When did this come out? I don't know the exact date this came out, but I put it in show notes in the title of the comic. The mo- one of the most famous comics on the internet is uh, Duty Calls. And it's a one-panel comic where a guy's a person, presumably a male, sitting at a computer. And somebody from off-panel yells, are you coming to bed? And he says, I can't. This is important. And the person off panel says, what? And he says, someone is wrong on the internet. Hmm. Justifiably very, very famous. But I mean, I think that's funny in two ways. Because first of all, there's the idea that, okay, this, you see this a lot every day, at least in my Twitter stream, which is I got a bunch of pals who are really smart about politics and, or, or whatever. And, and there is the need to go and let everybody know that Donald Trump is wrong. And I happen to agree that Donald, Donald, well, he's a demagogue. He's a, he's a guy who's out there, but you know, he's trading in the fact that you don't like him. Like, <laughs> right. He's, he's getting the more attention you, he's like lard lad, like the more attention you pay to him, like the bigger he will get. But whatever. I understand that we all have our different things we choose to do with our day. But, and, but then there's, so there's the one side of like, I, I cannot abide the fact that there is a fact, factual inaccuracy or incorrect person that exists in the world. <laughs> and then, but like, then it's not really, but then what's funny is then there's also this, this other, like, maybe this is the same thing, but then there's this other kind of personality, which is uh, this existential game of whack-a-mole where it is intolerable to some people that there is anybody out there who's, who says something that they strongly disagree with to the point where they think it's toxically wrong. And that and I say it's like whack-a-mole because they cannot rest until they have tried to destroy that person who disagrees with them. And that's the thing. And the trouble is once you, once somebody like that gets you in their sights, it's, uh, I mean, I, I tend to just disengage pretty quickly with it because it doesn't tend to go anywhere. But, uh, that's, that's the part that's dispiriting to me is just this, it seems like so many of us and myself included a lot of days is like, we have a very little sense of like uh, how how differently we all think on these big things, and often how how just slightly differently we think on this innumerable number of things, and it makes us further away from each other. But we don't really try to understand 
not necessarily like, what that person said, what that person meant to say, what the context for that is, why they might be saying it that particular day. You know, we take what that thing is and then try to make it into the straw man that we think we can beat. And I don't know, it just it makes me sad to just see that as a way that people are spending millions of hours a day. Well, you, you mentioned the whole Donald Trump thing, and this is actually a tangent that I've wanted to talk to you about a little bit, not because I like to talk about politics on podcasts, which I don't, but, oh man, and, and it, you know, I had this written down, and I don't have my notes in front of me, and it's, uh, what, who, what's the name of the guy that does Dilbert? Scott Adams. Scott Adams. Have you read what Scott Adams wrote about Donald or writes about Donald Trump? <clears throat> it's it's really interesting because he talks about how Donald Trump is a master of persuasion. He calls him a master persuader. And it's there there was a, a video that came out recently talking about Trump's language skills. And how he's, you know, they, they, they did sort of a rating during the debate and based on the vocabulary used, the words and, and the sentence construction and things like that, we're able to take each candidate and say, this candidate is speaking at a first grade level or a fifth grade level or a, you know, a, a 11th grade level or whatever. Yeah. And uh, then there was another video that came out where somebody had actually broke, broken down answers that trump was giving on i think he was on jimmy kimmel or something like that when asked about a a certain topic and the way that he answered it and the way that he would phrase his sentences and restructure sentences so that instead of having sentences that were essentially more complicated or more profound he would kind of turn them around so that he was always ending on a relatively powerful word and that that word was repeated multiple times throughout his answer and the words usually had a negative or fearful kind of focus to them. So like, I I don't have this in front of me, but it it was like, he might say, you know, died or problem or solution or something that was this, this heavy word. And they did this very visually, but it's fascinating because when you think about, and I don't want to get down into like the whole, you know, Illuminati lizard people kind of thing, but when you think about the way that he is, as you mentioned, kind of willing to be hated or willing to not, all of these politicians are up there so carefully crafting every single word of every single message, rehearsing every single thing that they, that they want to say, all of their responses, uh, totally programmed. That he's willing to go and say something that is clearly not rehearsed, that is clearly off the cuff, that is clearly going to have potential uh, side effects for him. Well, that'll, I mean, just we can just say it. It's some, something that is deliberately controversial. Yeah. That, that uh, <clears throat> I mean, gosh, did I, did I cut you off? No, no, no. Continue. Well, um, you know, the thing is, one thing that makes any... Um, interaction with somebody 
interesting is that I think most of us, without realizing it, tend to think that we have the same motivations and desires and rules of the game for how right. we conduct ourselves. Right. And and whether that's whether that's a you know a bar brawl or like a discussion on public transit or talking to somebody at the DMV, there's this understanding that we we all play by a similar set of rules and that we all are all bound by a similar set of constraints. And that's kind of, you know, I guess that's implicit in a lot of the social contract. Um, but like anybody who's been in lots of, uh, I guess, that, what's, the, what's the line they say that, you know, if you're a professional, like mar- martial artist or boxer, like right. the last thing you want to do is get into a street fight. Because those people don't know how to have a, uh, like a real fight. And the kind of real fight they have, <clears throat> they don't have the same stakes that you do. You know, like don't don't taunt a teenager because they don't know they're going to die. <laughs> um, and and in his case, I think part of what's interesting and part of his appeal is is the plain is the plainness of his speaking. So I've seen something you were ta- similar to what you talked about, where they talked about like again, I don't follow politics much, but I think they said, for example, that Ted Cruz had the most complex sentences, right? Um, in terms of sentence structure and in terms of, you know, having things like, you know, dependent clauses and all these kinds of things. And that Donald Trump tends to speak in these simpler sentences. Because I think that's, and it's, it's not a reflection of the intelligence of him or his audience. It's just that, that that is, I think, how he talks. When he's speaking publicly, he's done enough speaking as himself in public, as the character of Donald Trump, that he doesn't have to think about it and parse his words. Right. Do you know what I mean? I do. And I think that people get that, and that's appealing. And so in context, we assume that everybody up there at a debate, for example, has the same set of constraints. And these, you know, people who follow this kind of stuff know, well, you have to be electable. You got to figure out like who you're going to appeal to this week. You have to say things that are going to like appeal to these Iowa voters or whatever. But if you look at a lot of the I mean, you could think I'm trying, I, I, I'm not going to be good at calling these up, but I'm thinking of people like Ross Perot, mm-hmm. probably at a certain point, somebody like Teddy Roosevelt. If you get people who come in who are clearly playing by a different set of rules and are driven by a different set of motivations, they're very difficult to have the kind of fight you'd like to have with. And so he's right, able they're to playing come in. on a whole different, different kind of playing field. <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, it's so. And again, and so then when people try to analyze that, they get very frustrated because they look at it and go like, that guy is a proto-fascist or that guy is a demagogue or that, you know, and the thing is, I don't think that's how he sees himself. I think he sees himself as somebody who's speaking plainly in a way that people will understand and in a way that where, you know, he doesn't really, I get the feeling that he doesn't really care who agrees with him, including his supporters, which just makes him more attractive. And that's frustrating to people. It's, it's, it's frustrating. I mean, there's all different kinds of characters like that that drive the uh, opposite you know, side nuts because everybody else is going like, you know, can't anybody see that this person's crazy? This person's not like playing by the rules. This person is this, this person is that. And they're like, yeah, yeah, I know that. That's why we like him. And so that's, that's really disruptive. So I don't know. And, you know, then you get into this whole thing where people are like, you know, well, like, well, when's he going to get his comeuppance? When is he finally going to get his, you know, his, uh, his due for all of this stuff. And, you know, I don't, I don't know if he will because he's appealing. We've talked about this before with, uh, and I'm sorry, cause I, I have only read like five books in my life, but we've talked about this book that I liked a lot. There's, uh, we talked about that book metaphors we live, live by and that book, uh, don't think of an elephant, which was, it's not a perfect book. Uh, you can basically read the first essay, the titular essay and don't think of an elephant by Lake off. And it's, uh, it really helped me think differently about how people communicate publicly and particularly in politics. 
Did we talk about this too recently? Can I mention this just no, quickly? No, mention it. I don't think it was that recent. All right. Well, I mean, and I haven't read it since. Basically, Lakoff went into this to say, like, what happened, you know, in the 2000 election? Like, how how did, how did and I guess, to an extent, was it maybe in the 2004? I think mostly in the 2000. But he's basically saying, like, what happened to the Democratic Party? Uh, you know, you've had these substantial candidates with, with tons of experience who, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And George W. Bush, Bush just seems to just roll over everybody. And I think one of the things he comes up with is that, first of all, the Republican Party has over the years gotten better at setting aside their contextually minor differences in order to provide a united front, even when they didn't actually agree with each other. Whereas Democrats are content to tear each other apart and and gnaw gnaw on their uh, shin bones at the smallest disagreement. That's just, we're great at that. And, And, but then second of all, that whether they realize it or not, the Republican Party was creating a very compelling narrative based on a metaphor that didn't even need to be stated. But the metaphor is that basically a country is like a family and every family has a strong father. Mm -hmm. And that the thing was, if you go and look at what, what, you know, things like George W. Bush saying, we don't need a permission slip to invade this country or whatever, all the kinds of things that anybody who believes in a family with a strong father would look at that and say, well, yeah, of course we do what dad says and we don't talk that way to dad and you don't call dad dumb and all that kind of stuff. So all of the times that uh, us pointy headed briefcase carrying douchebag liberals were trying to go, look how dumb George, H- George W. Bush is, they would say, see, this is exactly what we're talking about. Like the more that people would attack Bush for being a dingling, the more the, the more people who supported him would say, see, see, see. And I think something similar is happening with Donald Trump. Why are we talking about politics? But because uh, I think it's really we're talking about politics, but we're really talking about communication. Communication and perception. for sure. And perception, like how does how does perception work? And so, um, but, but uh, one of the nut uh, points that he makes is that that in in public discourse, it's really all about framing. So when you when you intentionally or unintentionally hang an idea on a certain kind of metaphor. That metaphor becomes extremely important. He covered this in this book he co-wrote, I think, in 1980 called Metaphors We Live By. That's really good. And it's basically how, how metaphors are more than metaphors. Like metaphors are, are, as he says, how we live. It's how we think about life. It's how we process information. Life is a journey. These All these kinds of these ideas. And like it's one of those ideas that you or notions that you kind of can't unhear. And so... Now I, I tend to really think about that. And so when I, when I see people arguing about something, uh, um, especially if it's something I don't have a strong opinion about or a stake in, I tend to watch it more as a spectator to try and just understand what it is about each other's frames that these people either don't see or don't like. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of weird. It's almost like watching one person thinks you're having an argument about what's for dinner and the other person thinks you're having an argument about nuclear war right. and like, that never really gets addressed. And so you don't really ever have a way to resolve it because there's nothing to resolve. You're really arguing. If you're, if one person is arguing about substantial uh, changes to um, zoning and another person is really talking about, uh, you know, states' rights or the rights to govern things that you own, I'm talking too much at this point. I don't know. That, I, I tend to watch, when I look at it, I, I tend to just see the scaffolding sometimes, and that makes it more interesting for me to watch. So with Donald Trump, I don't, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I'm not a very political person, but I think he's a very interesting character in how much he's galvanized this certain point of view that was waiting for somebody to say what they think. And again, let's go back to Ann Coulter. Let's go back to Rush Limbaugh. Right. Let's go back to Pat Buchanan. Let's go back to any of these people who have been the demagogues of their time. 
who I have always tended to look at as pro wrestlers, where people, it's like, <laughs> I don't think people who listen to Rush Limbaugh always agree with everything Rush Limbaugh says. I don't think people who followed Ann Coulter always agree with Ann Coulter down the line, but they like that person's style. They like that person's apparent courage and they like that person's apparent straight talk. Think about like when you like you like talk radio, right? Yeah. Oh, of course. So like when you listen to talk radio, are you sitting there going like, oh, let me go jot down all this, all those person's ideas so I can make sure to implement them in my life. (laughs) No, it's like you like their style. Right. And that's what gets overlooked. It's like sometimes we like the way somebody rolls and we may not agree with everything they say, but that's not that's that's not the point. Do you know what I mean? It's like if you go to the restaurant and like the food, you're going to overlook the plastic plants. You're really there for the food. Anyway, your thoughts? Well, that's a lot. I mean, it's, I'm sorry. No, no, it's really it's <laughs> it's great, and it and I like. I'm not so much interested in talking about the politics part of it as much as I am in what you identified. I think really, really well is it's the you talk about the scaffolding of the communication aspect of it, and it's. I've always enjoyed, you mentioned talk radio, not just talk radio, but I've always really enjoyed listening to people communicate with one another and the ways that they communicate with one another. And this, I think, I think the reason that people are talking about Trump so much is simply because the way that he communicates it, there are these sort of agreed upon rules this is how we will communicate on the political stage. This is the way that we'll talk to one another. This is the kind of techniques that we'll use. Right. We all came up in the same kind of debate classes in high yeah, school. It's almost like we're in, a, we're in a play and we agree not to break character. Right. And, the, you know, you, this is the part where you can ad lib a little bit when you're pretending to be drunk in this scene. But other than that, like, this is what's going to happen. And he ignores all of that. He's unfamiliar with it and uses all of that to his advantage. And I think people are very ready, people being the the people of the United States, they're very ready to hear something that sounds very different than that to the point that they're willing to, and this goes back to the Ty Lopez thing, I think, is that if you listen to, watch these videos of Ty Lopez, Ty Lambeau, Talembo. He he sounds like the frat guy that you were in class with in college. And when you hear him speaking, you think to yourself, I mean, best case scenario, you think, oh, he sounds like a regular guy. Worst case scenario, you think, he doesn't sound all that smart. And he's wearing the t-shirt and he's kind of unshaved and, and just looks kind of sloppy. And wait a minute, he's like a millionaire billionaire and just bought a new Lamborghini and doesn't worry about money and like hangs out with Miss Kentucky and Mark Cuban. If, what? if yeah, if this in, oh in the parlance of our times, if, if this guy who kind of comes across as a, as a kind of like a putz is able to do this stuff, I'm, I'm not a putz. Like I took a shower and shaved this morning. I'm already a leg up on this guy. I just want to see what his 67 steps are because I could probably, if he could do those 67 steps, I could do them. So even though he never actually says anything in his videos, I I, I don't need that lifestyle that he's got, but I wouldn't mind like a better car than the one I have now. So I think that 
in the same way that he kind of draws you into that by saying like, oh, I just did these couple of different things. I was sitting, I started off, Ty speaking, I started off worse than you. You have more than $47 and you're not in like a trailer. You're already ahead of me. And you did shower today and I didn't. So you're already ahead of me there. But like, how come I'm hanging out with these people and I'm famous and famous and rich? You're already ahead of me. Like all you need are these steps. Just go ahead and give me some, give me some money. It, it, it makes sense. I think in the same kind of weird way, like Donald Trump is speaking to whatever that interesting kind of fed up, frustrated desire that that we have because he's he's like a he's like the guy who's like you're fired on the you know the tv shows and he's like a millionaire guys from new york he tells it like it is like i i want someone who's gonna tell i'm not saying i actually think this i'm saying the people who are on board with no no i, yeah, I, it, I get it i want someone who's gonna tell it like it is <clears throat> i know who he is he's not gonna take any crap like he says what he actually thinks for a change. And I understand what he says without having to look up words. And, you know, and I don't mean to demean our uh, No, because there's, 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 there's characters like that on every side. Which yeah. is the, if you agree with the character, you don't see it as that kind of character. That's the entire effing point. Yeah. Do, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, nobody thinks they're a dummy. There's there's not a single person in this world who goes, well, I'm not smart enough to have an opinion about politics. Derp, de derp. Everybody's got an opinion about everything. That's what makes it America. But, you know, I, 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 I think I get what you're saying for sure. I don't at all discount one part of this, which is that there may be people who, in their mind, are aware that they expressly wish to be like the person that they are for whom they are the supporter. Right, right. Right. So I don't discount that there's somebody out there who goes, Oh, I want to be Ty Lambeau. I, I think it might be more subtle than that for a lot of people, which is that there, it, it's more like, at least in discourse, for example, and maybe we can come back to Ty Lambeau in a minute, but like, and in, in when, when you, like, for example, I don't know if you saw that documentary on, uh, the recent documentary on the 1968 debates between Gore Vidal and William F. Buckley. You know, I, I have that right up next on my, to watch. I remember reading. I remember reading uh, an Esquire essay about that uh, in college. That was is fascinating. But I mean, that's a pretty great example. Like that's the ultimate intellectual wrestling match of these two people who are so so very different, except for being extremely uh, rich white people with a long lineage of, <laughs> of power in America. Right. In both cases, they are both shockingly articulate about a certain point of view, and they disagree strongly. Uh, initially, obviously, first on on you know what the, what the truth is or what the best thing is, but they also, in the presence of time, it becomes obvious they really actively dislike each other to where Buckley basically threatens to punch Gore Vidal in the face on live TV, <laughs> and it's pretty amazing viewing. Um, but I think what hap- I think one thing that happens, and this could be for Ty Lambeau and it could be for Gore Vidal, but I think it goes for lots of people, is that we have a certain idea about the world. That changes over time a little bit, but you know this is this is a very like tentpole back to work kind of idea. Is there's there's how I feel about how things are going for me, and there's how the world is in my reckoning, and then there's like the delta. Like why is why why are things not the way they should be? Why am I not accomplishing what I want to accomplish? And I do not mean to sound like Ty Lambeau right now, but I do think I do think a lot of us tend to look for reasons why things are the way they are, and I think even the smartest and most reflective person most intelligent person 
just, you know, couple, at least a couple times a week to 70 times a day, starts to think there must be stuff going on that I don't know about that makes the world the way it is. There must be some reason why that person has this and I don't. Or, or why these people keep getting away with this thing or whatever. And so in that case, I think when you find somebody who, first of all, says the things that you have been thinking or didn't realize you were maybe even thinking, oh, right? Oh, yeah, That's, yeah. The first thing is you found somebody that can articulate a point of view that comports with something you didn't even realize you thought. We go, oh, that's right. You know, there are a lot of Mexican people here, and they're 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 not speaking English, and that's that's always seemed a little weird to me. But I haven't been able to put my finger on it. Okay, you take that, you take it to the next level, which is either with much more virulence or uh, literacy or propulsion. They're able to take that point of view and and say it so clearly in a way that you never could. So they take a general idea. They are they articulate it and then they crystallize it until it's this little diamond where now somebody has said the thing you had thought you didn't know you thought it they said it better than you ever could and guess what they're all over TV talking about it and suddenly I don't think it's so hard to now make a step to going like and so the, well, that could be Gore Vidal too I mean that could be that could be Hillary Clinton God it certainly is Bernie Sanders where somebody is saying this thing that you've always thought yeah. about what's going on that you never you didn't couldn't quite articulate it and when you did nobody cared but there now there's somebody out there who's saying that so clearly and they're so on message now you take all of that now at that point you've got a pretty good Al Gore which is a good thing but now how do you make that really super viral you take somebody who's not afraid to say what you and they believe super clearly and succinctly and strongly but to also do it in a kind of plain language that seems antithetical to the very system that they're butting up against, right? So, vis-a-vis, when we see Bernie Sanders come in and talk about income inequality in a way that's extremely clear, he's been saying the same thing since 1985. <laughs> Say what you will about Bernie Sanders, the guy knows how to stay on message. He gets frustrated when the media wants to talk to, about, talk to him about his, his suits, He's like, shut up. Let's talk about income inequality, which is exactly what people want him to say. They don't want him to go, oh, sure. Let's talk about my suit. No, that's what they love about him is this is not about suits. This is about income inequality. Go, Bernie. Feel the burn. Right. Or you got Donald Trump going, hey, you know, all those Mexican people you've been really suspicious about. Well, I'll tell you why you should be suspicious, because here's A, B, C and D. Doesn't matter if it's right. Doesn't matter if it's accurate. He is saying and now he's your guy. And he's and they're doing it in a way that's very easy to understand and is very digestible and into sound bites. I'm not criticizing this, except I'm saying I think that's what happens. So how does that relate to Ty Lambeau? I mean, when you see somebody who has broken out of the system in a way that you haven't, it's very invigorating. And you kind of can't help but pull for somebody in that situation. Is, is part of it, I think. Okay. I can see that. <sighs> Do you want to tell me about something you like? I'll tell you about Casper. An online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. You know, these things are great. Ah, it's a new kind of hybrid mattress. It is. But that's not what's important. You know, that's not how you, you don't need to know. Let's talk about something that. important. Let's talk about something important. Let's talk about mattresses. <laughs> the reality is, you're going to go into a store and you're going you're gonna to lay on one of these mattresses. Everyone else is kind of beaten up. And you're supposed to decide in like three seconds or maybe three minutes if the store is empty that this is the right mattress for you. And somehow you're going to be on mattress a and roll around and then go on mattress B and roll around mm. and mattress C and roll around and, and figure out 
that under the bright lights and bizarre conditions of a mattress store, that this is what you want to sleep on for the next five years, 10 years, maybe longer. I don't think so. Wouldn't it be nice, Merlin, if there was a way for you to get a mattress into your house without having to even leave your house or go anywhere or pick it up or get help bringing it up the stairs or in the elevator or whatever and have a new mattress and sleep on it and then know if it's the right mattress for you. That's exactly how Casper works. They cut out the the middleman so that there are no mattress stores. You get to order one of these things. It shows up in a remarkably small box. And when you open up the box, the thing inflates, it opens itself up and you get to sleep on this thing for a hundred nights, which should be enough time. I would think for most people to know that they like it. And that's exactly how Casper works. If you don't like it within that time period, a hundred nights, then you, you just tell them, oh, I don't like it. They come, they take it away and you pay nothing for that. It's, it's, it's kind of amazing. And what you get is an even better price than what you get if you went to one of those stores. So instead of paying you know, thousands of dollars, you pay hundreds of dollars, 500 for a twin size, 950 for a king. Try and find a king for 950 anywhere. But these things are great. And the reason that you're paying so little is because they don't have all this overhead of uh, mattress stores and warehouses and all of that nonsense. They just ship them right to you. Uh, so I, I think you're going to really like this. I, I love the Casper mattress, and so does my little kid. He, uh, we had, they had sent us one to try out, and he just simply refused to get off of it. He now hates his mattress uh, at at home because of Casper. So <laughs> you can get fifty dollars toward any mattress that you purchase by visiting Casper.com/backtowork and use the code back to work. Fifty dollars toward any mattress. Terms and conditions apply. So thanks very much to Casper. For supporting 5x5 five five and back to work, Merlin Man. Thanks, Casper. My daughter and I were uh, went out to lunch and went to Flax the other day, and we were walking by this uh, old, famous mattress store, mattress maker and mattress store. It's kind of a, you know, very famous old San Francisco store. We walk by, and there's, and there's this couple, this kind of, uh, you know, well-to-do-looking couple in the window of a store on Market Street doing that thing, trying on the mattress. And it's very funny to watch someone do this because here's what you do. You walk up to it, you look at it, and then you sit down and you go, hmm. And then you lay down like this. Hmm. <laughs> you close, maybe you close your eyes and then you do a kind of thump, thump, thump. Like you're going to kind of like just gotta move your body a little bit and see how the mattress reacts. Maybe you t- take your fingers like this, like you're making a claw and you push down, thump, thump, thump. You're going to sleep on that thing for like 15 years. Six to eight hours, one third of your life will be spent on that mattress. And that's how you're going to try it. That's like going into a store to try on pants. That's like taking a pair of pants off the rack and then making them walk around the room <laughs> and see if you think that that would be comfortable. Right. Pants, pants, pants. Ah, people are weird. Oh, boy. America. Persu- persuasion. Persuasion. And America- the art of persuasion is, is a fascinating topic. And if you, it's. You know, before there was there was Ty Lambo, there was this other guy. I don't remember his <laughs> name, but we used to have. I want to take the. Well, I know we have a lot of listeners who are twenty somethings, but they had grown up in a world of lots and lots and lots of entertainment all the time. They all have second screens. They have third screens. They have fifth screens. Mm-hmm. Fifth screen. There's so much to do 
there's so many different kinds of entertainment, entertainment that's on demand, video, audiobooks, reading things on the web, reading regular things. You know what I mean? That they don't understand that there was a time period when you would get home and you're not ready to sleep yet and you got to wind down and the only thing on is this thing called an infomercial. <laughs> right. And you would put these things on and they were so bad they were good. They were so bad that they could they could be funny. But th- we watched them not because we wanted to, but because whatever was on MTV sucked at the moment. So we would watch these other things. And I remember watching these things. And if you if you're watching them, there's a certain kind of way of speaking and this almost monotonous kind of a tone and and this this thing that even even smart people you kind of get just a little interested in like what they're saying i'm not saying that, that i ever bought anything from them or signed up i never i, I've I never done it, did i've done but, it in the last month you just turn it on and you're like my god this thing is like you're oh, sucked oh in god. I, I bet it's going to be thirty nine ninety five. I bet they're going to get two of them. <laughs> yes, you get two of them for thirty nine ninety five. Right? It's just something very satisfying. It's kind of like it's kind of like an awkward. It's like it's like eating out of a junk food machine. Right. It's very comforting in a dumb way. It is. And there was this one guy. Who, you know the bow tie? No, he was he was younger, and he, it was something about. I think that, I think I still remember it, but it was like you can start today. With only five dollars, I started with only five dollars. Don LePray. In, in my bank account, and Don LePray. I think, yeah, I think that's. This is all was. about buying and selling ads, right? That's that guy, it. The guy was on Miami Beach. Yes, and it's about placing. It's all about placing. See, small you know ads. it. You know it. Oh yeah, I know how it ended too. It's amazing. Tell, Don, tell I was it. Obsessed, I was obsessed with Don LePray because. Okay, so there's there's a very famous. I I really hate to spoil this for you because this is one of the all time. Yeah, that's scams. him. I just googled him. That's him. I'm, I'll put him in the show notes. Um, anybody of our age, especially of my age, if you picked up anything like especially Rolling Stone, but even stuff like Harper's. But let's say you pick up. It could be a Village Voice. Could be a Rolling Stone. You would always see ads in the back that said things like this. Um, something like uh, make money stuffing envelopes. Yes. Send five dollars to find out, and you go, "Whoa, that that that's awesome!" Yeah, I'll send five. So you would send this person five dollars and a self-addressed stamped envelope, and what you would get back in your self-addressed stamped envelope was a tiny little strip of paper that had been cut out of like it was the world's cheapest implementation of this idea. Basically, they copied this thing off and made cut it into ten little strips, and the strip would say, "Do what I just did." I mean, isn't that do, weird? Do you follow that? Yeah. Make money stuffing envelopes. Right. Send $5 to find out how. Right. And you would receive that and says, do what I just did. Yeah. And that's how you do it. So now, so, yeah, okay, now you know. Go and place an ad. And that's essentially, I think, what Don LaPray's, uh small ads thing was. And it didn't turn out great. <laughs> no, it really didn't. Um, I, 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 I lost track because he used to be, they're basically, he used to be, on constantly and if i remember he was always like on like i want to see like miami beach and there would be these weird like floating dutch angles of him where the camera was <laughs> it was kind of a slight sm- slightly smoothed out verite of him of like the camera and he had this super weird hair and he was talking about buying and selling small ads tiny here <laughs> tiny classified ads that's what i did i found tiny classified ads that made 30 to 40 dollars profit in a week and I placed those ads in around a thousand other newspapers around the country. That's how I generated over $50,000 a week 
out of my one-bedroom apartment and in my Making Money package, I'll show you some secrets about placing ads that's going to make you wish you started doing this five years ago. Um, but, well, you know, that, that's, that's a funny thing, though, is uh, there is a natural... Uh, there is, all of us has a certain kind of optimist inside of us. Where, not, if not an optimist, we're certainly looking, f- looking for whatever the next big thing is going to be. I don't know. I'm pivoting too much here. But, you know, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is, like, if you hear what I'm saying and you even partially agree with me, remember that you're part of the problem, too. We're all, we all do these things. Like, there's, there's all these famous cliches. You think about the cliche. Let's, let's, let's start with infomercials. You think about the cliche of people who buy junk off of TV. Oh, uh, these are, like, poor people and middle-class people. They're probably in trailers. They don't have jobs, right? There are those kind of people. They're sitting there and they're watching their TV that doesn't even have cable. And so, of course, they're watching infomercials like an animal. And they go and they buy this exercise equipment because they're morbidly obese and bad people. And then they buy this exercise equipment. And guess what? They never even use it. Like, oh, that's so typical. Like, isn't that kind of a cliche? The idea of the person who has all this exercise equipment they don't use, who is, to make the joke funny, probably heavy. Isn't that kind of a bit in America? Yes. Okay. Anybody here spent over $5 on a kitchen gadget that they've only used once. Mm-hmm. I have. Mm-hmm. We have a stand-up mixer that we've used maybe three times ever. <laughs> but I'm but I'm special and important. I spend my, I spend lots more money on, on 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 bigger things that I don't use. It's a completely common American thing to like try and seek out the, the person or product who's going to be the solution for what it is that you want. Ah, oh, we're so far off the topic of this show. Um, but you know, I don't know. I just think we all have we all have our I mean, this is kind of the nature of advertising and marketing is the idea of trying to like find the people for whom what you want to do is a good fit. I mean, it's, it's not a terrible idea. It's not a bad idea. It's certainly not a new idea. But, you know, but to, to your point, though, about <laughs> why are we talking about Donald Trump? The thing that the thing that makes Donald Trump interesting, like these other folks, is that on the one hand, you're right. He's not fighting the same way that everybody else fights or the same way everybody else right. wants to fight, right. which makes that person interesting. You know, that this, this person who is, by his own account, a billionaire can be considered an outsider because of the way he talks about Mexican people. Mm-hmm. That's a funny idea to me, mm-hmm. but that's okay. You know, the, the point is, though, that he's not fighting in the same way. And when he gets into a street fight with somebody who thinks they're in an arm wrestling match, he ends up killing them. He's like, a, imagine if Hillary Clinton had to debate an 11 year old boy where all that little boy <laughs> ever said in his time allotted was, you fart. And she goes, well, you know, and for this policy and, uh, you know, with how we deal with Syria to be implemented, there's got to be some change. And he goes, you fart, you fart, you fart. So like, at some point, like she could certainly keep on her, her, her point, but like she could also say, you know, you're being very immature to keep saying you fart over and over. And he go, hmm, well, you fart. And it'd be like, oh, would you please stop saying you fart? Oh, yeah, but you fart. And it would just keep going. And the thing is, everybody who loves you fart boy is going to be cheering. Yeah. They're so excited that somebody is finally up there, like taking, taking the piss out of these people by saying you fart. And like, so you know what? That person could probably have a good run. As long as he stays on message and just keeps saying you fart, he'll do fine for a very long time. And he will not be welcome at the grown-ups table at a lot of places, but that's not his demo. His demo is people who like the fact that he says you fart. And he knows that, and so he stays on that message. He doesn't complicate it by suddenly coming in one day and wearing a top hat and a monocle <laughs> and, and going like, it is believed that flatulence is a production of your uh, hindquarters. Right. He always says you fart. 
So it goes on a shirt, and now he's got a platform. You fart. Or you're fired, or whatever the catchphrase oh, can be. And for that reason, I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, think, I think about any time that the nation as a whole is paying attention to something like this, I'm always reminded of these different styles of communication. Because I think back to when I was working in an office, and we used to have these meetings all the time, and how often so many of the people in the meetings, they, they didn't really speak. They just sort of hung out and they listened. And if they were asked a question, they had an answer or they would have their part where they would talk. And I remember one place that I worked, which is the, the most corporate of all the corporate places. It was a telecommunications billing systems company with thousands of technology employees and probably five times as, as many like CSR people working in there. And I remember occasionally they would have these things where they would bring all of the sort of departments together into a big room and they would have one person from each of the groups kind of go up and summarize what the group was working on and might rep, you know, one person out of a, anywhere from five to maybe 15 people. So they'd kind of go up and you'd spend like the whole day listening to what all the other groups were doing. And it, you know, th this wasn't part of your performance review. No one was being graded on it. It was intended to be something that was like, pick the most enthusiastic, excited person from your group and get up and, and have them talk about like this cool stuff that you're doing. It wasn't even like, well, we, we need to make sure that everyone else knows what you're doing. It, that wasn't even the philosophy behind it. It was almost like a show and tell, really. Of, like, this is the stuff that we're working on. And I remember people, so many uh, in, in, in like the engineering teams or the technical writing teams, those people picked those careers because they didn't like getting up in front of people. They weren't, uh, right, that was, right. it was outside of their comfort zone. And of course, the director or VP of all of this was the type of person who believed that everybody should be like them and everybody should uh, want to not only should they would they be good at it if they didn't more, but that they should want to face the challenge of getting up in front of other people and speaking, which for so many, so many people out there is nightmarish and exactly what they don't ever want to be doing, especially people. Uh, let's make the generalization, but especially people who are in front of a computer for eight to 10 hours a day. Those are the kinds of people who or generally speaking, the least interested in getting up in front of a group of several hundred people, most of whom they don't know, and talking about what they're doing in terms that these other people should be able to understand. And I remember, for me, I was always the one in my group who'd do it, and I wouldn't prepare, and I'd get up and have fun up there and make some jokes and like, we're working on this thing, and then sit down, and, and you know, people would laugh, and it would be, it would be neat, it'd be done. And that was it. They just, you know, that was the whole point of it was just... just sharing it. But I remember some of my close friends and some of the other groups would be stressing for days and even weeks ahead of time, preparing, rehearsing, going over it and over it and, uh, you know, going and getting a special haircut in the days in, in advance of this and picking out the perfect clothing and make sure that it was ironed. 
And nobody cared. Like, really, nobody cared. There, no right, one was. Right. Nobody. It would. No one had. They, had. they had their own idea about what success looked like. Right. For that thing. I mean, isn't that kind of fair to say? Yes. And it I just, mean, obviously, it, success would be that you don't. You know, falling. Nobody wants to fall on their face or look stupid right. or say you fart. But like, part of everybody who went up there probably had some idea about why it was high pressure and how to succeed with it. Right. Exactly. And the the thing that I the reason I bring this up, sort of in relation to. Donald Trump and these other things is because I I just remember watching how all of these different people were communicating on what was essentially a stage. And although there was no debate and they weren't trying to really win any points, we often forget, I think, as people who are, you know, in, in the audience as opposed to on the stage, how what that's really like and that occasional time when when you're actually required to do that or you need to do that when i was up on uh i I talked about the weird al thing that i did at um at the future stack conference but they also had me moderating a couple of other panels uh that about things i didn't really understand like cloud whatever and (laughs) one of them was called and and the reason that they picked me to host it is because of this show because clearly in Back to Work, we're talking about, you know, productivity and comics. So they thought I should be the one to host this. The thing was called Alert Fatigue. Alert Fatigue. And it had to do with something that at first I thought I would be able to understand, which is like, oh, man, all these alerts that we get taking us away from the important things and like the fact that none of us. We think we multitask well, but we really don't. And that's not really what alert fatigue was. They were actually talking about all of these systems that are built to integrate into like monitoring applications and other things that are are alerting you to problems and the problem of that. So anyway, I, I kind of twisted it into something I could talk about a little bit. But the other folks that I was up there with, all but one of them, they were hardcore like engineers. These were guys who were writing code every day uh, and bu- and doing IT stuff. And the, the idea of like being up on stage and sitting in a chair and being asked questions by me doing my best job at making them feel comfortable. Even so I, I was looking over and you could, you could see the sort of flop sweat. You could see their hands just shaking, just shaking. And they were petrified being up there and, beforehand i kind of get the sense that like they were a little nervous and i said oh man you know don't worry about it it's gonna be fun we're talking about stuff you guys do every day like it's gonna be easy just relax up there pretend there's no audience pick a person in the audience you can you know like you can smile at or just look at me while i'm talking you know and it's like no big deal I'm like oh you're helping me feel better i'm like okay good they were terrified when they were up there and after afterwards i was talking to the one guy and who I was seemed like the most nervous. And I said, I went up to him. I said, you did great. Like you were awesome that your answers were great. I tried to ask you things, you know, that you had talked about. We had talked about in our little meeting beforehand to relax. And he's like, no, it was, it was good. I'm just glad it's over. I'm like, yeah, time to go have a drink. He's like, well, I, I probably shouldn't have anything to drink. I'm like, why not? He's like, why? Well, I, I, I took like three Xanax before I went up on stage. And, <laughs> wow. you know, and like I was so nervous. I started, you know, I got I got a cold like two days before this because I was so, so nervous. And my immune system was down. And we, the whole thing took like 20 minutes. And it's, you know, we think about this from the standpoint of like, oh, these people up there, they're saying whatever they want or they're debating a certain way. But like the 
the way that they respond to that, the way that they, they, these are people who want to be up there. You know, these are people who are perfecting their, their skill and their art. And for a regular human to go and do something that they're doing, not at the level of every eye in America and perhaps the world is, is on them and re watching what they do and reading what they say. But, you know, just a thousand people in a room who are all pretty much geeks and who all just want to learn about alert fatigue. Like even that is, is such a step for people. And I, I just, I'm fascinated how for some people, and I would put myself in that category, it's, it's a non-issue. It's not a thing. I could be up in front of a few hundred, a few thousand people. It's, it's fine. I've always loved it. I realized I loved it when I was six, seven years old. I was in Peter Pan and a little school play. And I was like, this is easy. This is fun. I love this kind of thing. But for other people, just getting up in front of a small group is such a challenge. And, and I don't know, but I don't, I don't really know if that's a topic or not, but it, it just, it's fascinating to me. And I don't, I don't know why it doesn't bother me. I don't know well, why. It's, it's certainly, I think it's germane to some of the things we just talked about, because one of the things is if you see somebody who's saying the thing that you wish you could say well, and they're saying it, they're thinking and saying it better than you ever could, that person's like a superhero to you. To be able to see somebody who is capable of that is is really inspiring, right? In some ways, um, yeah, I, yeah. That that is a very interesting thing. I mean, it's 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 strange. It's one of the very few things where I not one of the very few. One of the things where I I do feel like I f I feel very fortunate that I'm not somebody who's. I, I mean, I enjoy that. I enjoy talking to people and talking in front of people. Well, you're so yeah. good. You're so good on stage. Well, are no, you I nervous? Mean, are you nervous? Like well, when you go? No, up? I mean, first, thank you for saying that. I don't think I'm good on stage, but I think part of it is that like I, of all the things I worry about every day, day in and day out, what's going to happen because of what I said on stage is rarely one of those things. There's, I mean, that's actually a kind of a calm time for me. That's a very controlled environment. Mm -hmm. Like there's only so many things that like, unless the building falls on me or John <laughs> Wilkes booth jumps out of a balcony, I'll be fine. <laughs> That's not likely to happen. There's, there's all right. kinds of things. Like I have to go live in my head for the rest of the day after that, you know, Mazel Tov. Um, can I, can I pivot a little bit here? Yeah. But not, not, not too much. Cause I think this, I think this is the same point we've been talking about. Are you, are you, uh, you know, our show is famous for, for bringing many uh, parables, uh, right. to our audience. <laughs> right. And for some reason I'm reminded of this parable, you know, the parable of the elephant and the blind men. Yes. So six blind men in a village. And somebody said, hey, there's an elephant in the village today. I'm going to make this quick. They didn't know what an elephant was. So the six blind men, or sight-impaired people, uh, go, up, go up to this elephant, and they say, uh, they had no idea what an elephant is. They said, even though we won't be able to see it, let's go and feel it anyway. So they all went up to the elephant, and every one of them touched the elephant. The first guy touched the elephant's leg, and he said, hey, an elephant is a pillar. And another guy went up and touched the tail of the elephant. He said, oh, no, 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 the elephant is like a rope. The other guy went and touched the trunk of the elephant. He said, no, 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 no. It's like the thick branch of a tree. Another guy walks up and touches that, that big floppy ear of the elephant. He says, no, no, an elephant is like a, is like a big hand fan. Finally, another guy goes up and touches the, uh, the underside, the belly of the elephant and says, no, 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 you guys are wrong. An elephant is like a huge wall. And then finally, the sixth guy walks up and touches the tusk of the elephant and says, you're all wrong. It's like a solid pipe. Mm. Now, this is certainly one of the oldest, you know, parables or you know, metaphors for explaining how we see things. So let's be really dumb here and talk about why this is. Let's talk about something important. They're all right. 
each one of those people is correct. The part of it that they can perceive and touch was accurately described, but it still doesn't really describe what the elephant is. I love that. I love that parable. And I think it goes a long way toward explaining whether you're getting up and talking in front of people or who you choose to follow in an election. Everybody's got a different part of the elephant that they're touching. Right. And so, like, for example, and what you described with going up there on stage, you know, what? for some reason, I, and you, you've talked about this a lot in your previous jobs of like <sighs> feeling like you might be way too competent for the job you're in or feeling like you don't understand. One doesn't understand why one is being rewarded for how great a job they're doing. And, you know, I, we haven't we talked about that a fair amount. Yeah, yeah. Like feeling like, like, what the hell's going on in this company? Right. I'm the only one in this place that understands what the hell's going on here. I, what, what, is, what is going on? And I, I started thinking about various jobs I've had. I started thinking about what you're describing there. And um, so, so to me, a pivot there is to think about, like, think about all those people who are going to go up there on stage. And, like, uh, or, you know, just even how you conduct yourself in a day. You may have, you have some guess or idea about what your role in the company is and what success looks like. But do you have, actually have any idea how accurate that is? Because I've been in jobs where I sat there and thought, I, should, I work so hard here like every day. Like one job I had, a job I've talked about a lot, I was working up to 80 hours a week, mm-hmm. usually working at least 60, but sometimes 80 hours a week, and producing a lot of work with a lot of billable hours. And you know, in retrospect, I was making a very small amount of the money that was charged, but that's okay because I like the job. But I thought I was the most important person and hardworking person in the building. But the really important people in the building were the people who were billing six times more an hour than I was. Right. So I would look at those people and say, this guy last fr- last Monday morning, this guy drank from the wrong coffee cup and drank half and half from Friday. He's not super bright. <laughs> But he bills six times what I do and makes six times what I do. And that drove me nuts because I thought I've never drunk half and half from a cup of coffee that, that's four days old. But the, the truth is, inside the company, he was more valuable because he was more of an earner. And it didn't matter if his work was maybe not as good as mine, or maybe it was. I don't know. The point is, all I saw was the part of elephant, the elephant that I held, which is how much of my time I knew I was spending in that office. And that seemed really wrong. Another job I had, I thought, you know, I should be really zipping up the ladder here. I did not know nearly as much as I thought I knew about what I was doing. This was during the dot-com era. Things were happening fast. Everybody was working a level or two or two above where they should be. And I thought, you know, first of all, I'm going to be really rich when this place has an IPO in a year or two. Right. We all thought that. We mean, you know, we had stock. We were all paid well. But then we thought, wow, I'm going to basically be able to retire before I'm 35. Because, and, of course, I'm so valuable. I had no idea what our group did inside the company seemed so important to us and seemed right. so important to to me. And we it seemed like we obviously had to be like all these sales guys and biz dev guys over here running around in their fancy ties. Like, what are they contributing? They just, they just go to lunch on for two hours. Like, look at us. We're back here actually making the cold fusion. We're the ones that make this place run. Right. Didn't matter what we did. We could have gone, we could have put dick pics on the website and it would have had the same valuation. It had almost nothing to do with what we were making. But because I worked hard on it and felt like it was important, it didn't make any sense to me when suddenly the company went away. And I saw that as incompetence. Maybe it was incompetence, but I was holding a different part of the elephant. Well, so why am I beating this to death? Because I just, as we all feel very wise and stroke our beards about how dumb everybody else is and how smart we are, I want you to go back to that to that uh, parable of the elephant and ask yourself what part of the elephant you're holding and how much somebody else maybe is holding a different part and whether either of you really have seen one whole elephant, let alone dozens of them. 
because I think once we achieve a high level of confidence about something, whether or not it's an earned high level of confidence, if you get a high level of confidence that your skills are really good, regardless of how well that's been tested, if you get a very high sense of confidence that what you believe is true and replicable scientifically in the universe, whether or not that's the case, that's when you start going down an odd road. And that's when you start looking at all the other dummies out there who just haven't seen the world the way you've seen it. So I guess my plea in the new year is, like, uh, join me in realizing that we're all dummies and that maybe we're all holding a different part of the elephant. Oh, that's good. It is. It's pretty good. It's a very, very old idea. It's, uh, when is this? It's from a Jain tradition. Tale became well-known in the 19th century. Did you want to tell me about uh, one more thing that you like? Tell you about our old friend, Squarespace. Squarespace! Squarespace! Still around. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. Build it beautiful. Build it, comma, beautiful. I still am so blown away by Squarespace. I still, I, I, whenever I, I, I'm using three different versions of Squarespace for different things, and each one of them still continues to amaze me. What do you mean when you say different versions? Well, I've got, I've got a lot of stuff, but still on, I think, Squarespace 5, just because I've been nervous you know, about changing things. Oh, yeah. You know how it is when you've got a production environment that works? Yep. And then I've got other things that are the latest and greatest. Uh, so like when I have to go and update the website for you know, the Un- Ungainly X-Man meetup, I'm using the latest and greatest, and it's, it's bananas. You should talk about that e-commerce stuff at some point. Well, yeah, I mean, that's something... That stuff that, is nutty balls. It seems like it would be really hard still to sell something online and people always like oh you know what i want to i want to sell some stickers so it starts with stickers or i want to do mugs or t-shirts t-shirts and there are lots of services that'll like let you do t-shirts for example but a lot of the time you're like well i i really want to like manage this myself i want to do it myself i have uh, what if i want to sell a t-shirt and a mug like how do i calculate shipping on that and what if what if i want to sell something uh w- as a bundle and i want to sell three things or what about you know all of these things become, you'll think selling t-shirts is easy until you realize that somebody wants to order four of them. Do you yeah, really want to? Wanna... And they're, they're, in the, they're in the UK. Right. They're available at different times. <laughs> Do you send them as different packages? Because now that changes the shipping and handling. It's so much more. I just can't get people to understand that implementation, figuring out what size box and weight. Oh, my God. Mm. Well, they, right? isn't that isn't that like a huge pain? It is the biggest pain, especially when you start doing mixed stuff. Because there's been multiple times when we've wanted to sell, like we did a five by five mug. So they would want a five by five mug. They'd want a quit sticker, and they'd want a back to work T shirt. Well, those know, weigh such different things, they, right? So, like, <laughs> do you, do you charge them shipping for each item individually? Do you build shipping into the cost? If only there was like something that could calculate that. Well. Like, that's one of the things that Squarespace e-commerce store does so well. You can put in a weight for something. It'll calculate shipping. It'll calculate shipping for, like, U.S. mail versus FedEx versus UPS. You tie it into your account. It'll do all of this stuff. It makes the shipping part super you can, you easy. You can print labels. It can, prints I mean, labels. Right? Yeah. That's crazy. I mean, all of this is built in. We often talk about the fact that you can host a podcast with Squarespace. You can. If you're a musician and you want to put your album up, they have a really cool little MP3 player. You're a restaurant and you want to do your menu. You're a, a blogger and you want to post blog stuff. You're an iOS developer and you want to use one of their like really cool landing templates to talk about your app and have the iTunes link. Like It's all just done for you. And it's amazing without doing any HTML, without doing any CSS, without understanding any of that stuff at all, how two people could start with 
the same template, even though there's tons and tons to choose from, two people could start with the same one. And in 15 or 20 minutes of just moving little sliders around, you have two sites that couldn't look more different, but that are both elegant, that are both great, that both look amazing in every browser on every platform because they've solved all of this stuff. And uh, just it's a great company, tons of options. Uh, you can get 10% off your first purchase and show your support for Back to Work, Merlin Mann, by going to squarespace.com slash back to work. Just go in there, shows them that you're listening. But when you sign up, the code you want to use is it's your show, one word, it's your show, and you'll get 10% off your first purchase. So thanks very much to Squarespace for supporting 5x5 and back to work. Build a beautiful... Bok, bok. You know what they got, Dan? What's that? <clears throat> in, in the e-commerce functionality? You know what they have? What? Shoppable lookbooks. What? what? Shop up, shoppable, shoppable lookbooks. Lookbooks? Lookbooks. The lookbooks are shoppable. <laughs> shoppable lookbooks. Check a bobblehead. <laughs> Do you remember a thing that happened over the summer when a picture emerged? Uh, you know, there's, of course, it was, it was a crazy year. You know, we all remember uh, that Co-Daddy guy a few years uh you know, shooting elephants from a helicopter, oh, yeah. third, third elephant reference this episode. Yeah. Um, we remember uh, the late, great Cecil the lion that was killed by that dentist mm, guy who shot him. Mm-hmm. Do you remember what happened over the summer when a, uh, an old picture emerged of uh, Steven Spielberg after he killed a dinosaur? No, what? Check out show notes. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how many people, how many people saw this. I, I only, I only learned about this in a year end wrap up thing I read uh, last week or so. Basically somebody, um, who was it? Uh, this guy Jay Branscombe, I guess, posted a, a, a production still from Jurassic Park of a dead, a dead-looking Triceratops figure with Steven Spielberg sitting next to it, and it kind of it is funny because it does look like one of those dingling hunter. <laughs> Do you see it? Yeah, right. <laughs> so this guy, I remember this, guy posts, this scene. I remember this scene from the movie. It's a very realistic looking triceratops. This is when the triceratops has, has eaten the wrong plant. And oh. the, uh, what's her name? Dern? Yeah, the, the crying a- girl. The, yeah, the actress. She comes <laughs> crying. She comes up and is sort of looking looking through the, the scat of the triceratops to see what it's eaten mm. and listening to it. And it, it breathes. And this is a very realistic looking scene, if I remember right. It is. And so this, this, this fellow posted the link, and here's what he said. When he posted this photo of Stephen King with a make-believe dinosaur being dead, he said... Spielberg. The caption... Of uh, Spielberg. Yeah. The caption says, Disgraceful photo of recreational hunter happily posing next to a triceratops he just slaughtered. Please share so the world can name and shame this despicable oh man. Oh, my God. Okay. So, like, some people are going to look at that and laugh. Things got a little weird when, <laughs> when Joyce Carol Oates... The no, no, chimed in. No, well, this is the beauty part. Okay, so first of all, let's say it. Uh, according to this BuzzFeed article, anyway, some many people <laughs> on Facebook chimed in to talk about how bar- barbaric this was. Steven Spielberg, I'm disappointed in you. I'm not watching any of your movies again, Animal Killer. Disgraceful. No wonder dinosaurs became extinct. Sickles <laughs> like this kill every last one of them as soon as they're discovered. He should be in prison. <laughs> Okay, so wait, I'm going to come back to this. I know what you're thinking. Relax. And now, Joyce Carol Oates says, so barbaric that this should still be allowed. No conservation laws in effect, whatever, whatever, wherever this is. Okay, so it's funny because, first of all, I'm guessing at least one person thought Steven Spielberg had killed a dinosaur. 
which is funny <laughs> because Steven Spielberg, let's just let's just really be dumb and talk about what happened here, made a movie with dinosaurs in it. And also, to our knowledge, unless you disagree with me because of your political or religious point of view, we probably didn't live at the same time as dinosaurs <laughs> is a thing. But then here's what's fair is what gets funny about this, because that gets passed around, and it gets passed around with, I don't know if it's equal virality, by people who go, LOL, this is a funny picture. All right? And over here, you got somebody who goes, this is despicable. Steven Spielberg killed this dinosaur. And then you got somebody back on the other side going, LOL, this person thought Steven Spielberg killed a dinosaur. Right? And then you got somebody on the other side comes back and goes, oh, you know what? Triple LOL, because I was making a joke about you making a joke about people thinking it was real. Think about how many levels there are to something as dumb as a picture of a fake dinosaur with a director in it. How do you know? I mean, like, there's, like, I don't know, not semiotically, but, like, there's all kinds of different ways of seeing everything. Yeah. And, like, even when you think you know the take on it, you may not know the take on it. It's easy enough to go on Facebook and find lots of people who made a joke about how Steven Spielberg is a monster for killing that dinosaur. Is there a chance that some of them were just playing along with the joke? I think probably yes. Yeah. So you could choose to draw any number of conclusions based on that. You could conclude that, first of all, aren't memes dumb? Well, yeah, they are dumb. But like, yeah, you could also conclude, can you believe how many people think dinosaurs are still alive? Can you believe how many people don't realize that this is something from Jurassic Park? There's so many levels of incredulity that you could choose to apply to this one production image from a movie. And that happens thousands of times every day, not just with images on the internet, but everywhere where we all have our own idea about what we see and what we think other people see. And that helps us draw incredibly broad conclusions about how connected or bright, intelligent or mindful the rest of the populace is because we're all holding a different part of the elephant or in this case, the uh, triceratops. Did you see the good dinosaur? I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's on my list. Yeah. Didn't you say it wasn't? Man. Um, Monsters University and The Good Dinosaur are the two Pixar movies I've thought about the least after I saw it. And usually I think a lot about a Pixar movie after I've seen it. I'm not criticizing. I don't mean to criticize. But uh, maybe it's just not for me. But Good Dinosaur, uh, yeah, it was visually exquisite, but like... Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I didn't think about it a lot after I came out. Mm. I, I saw Star Wars once, and I'm still thinking about it. That's probably not a fair comparison. Dan, do you have any intellig- anything intelligent that you can add to this to give us a way to cap this off? I liked Star Wars, too. Yeah. Hmm. Um, a lot of people want to be on the show. We have a it's wonderful a still- listener yeah. base. Avid of avid listeners. I got one in October uh, where I had posted something. All I'm going to say is I put some posted something on my Tumblr site and this person who I don't know contacted me and said, Hey, I noticed, noticed you posted a thing about, in this case, Van Halen on your website. Uh, I work with this project that does this thing that is many, many levels away connected to Van Halen. Uh, and we made an infographic about that. Would you, would you want, want me to send you a link to that? And at first I, I didn't respond because I didn't, I didn't care. And then, uh, the person, uh, said, sorry, don't mean to bug you. Just wanted to make sure you got the email below. Right. Thanks so much. Yeah. And this is now November. And I wrote back and I said, sure. 
Thanks. Well, here's the thing. If you got a link, send the link. You don't have to ask permission to send a link. If you're going to, it's much more annoying to email somebody than it is to send them a link. Emailing somebody to ask if you can send a link is ludicrous. Right? Kind of. I'm with you. Yeah, like, I, I if agree. If you've got the temerity to email a stranger, send them the goddamn link. And this person says, great. Here's the infographic. If you decide to share this with your readers, we'll be more than happy to contribute an intro post. Thanks again for taking the time out. And we want an intro post, right? I mean, who wouldn't want that? And, uh, you know, the thing was, I, uh, I didn't respond. Mm-hmm. So now, now it's November 16th. I get another email. Just following up to see if you had a chance to look at the infographic hosted on Deedly Deedly D. Since you covered this before, link to my post, I thought your readers might enjoy the overview. And also, the signature always says, P.S., any and all feedback is welcome. I didn't respond to that. 1229. Merlin, forgive me for reaching out to you again, but just wanted to check in to see if you think our infographic is a fit for your audience. So I'm going to keep up with this. I'm going to let you know how this goes. I'm not going to respond just because I want to see how long this will go on. Before he will, he will just completely give up trying at all. Do do you like it when people reach out like that? No, when people no, touch no. base to see whether whether you got a thing that they ask if they could send you. No, am I am I being a dick, Dan? No, is that isn't that isn't that kind of weird? I mean, I think it's weird. Yeah, I think it's real weird. But this is this is the way that people uh, are always reaching out now. Can you imagine if you wrote for like one of those uh, tech websites? Email. Can you imagine what that must be like? Right, here's now, a, this is by the way, this is the outreach coordinator who's contacting me. The outreach the outreach coordinator. They're reaching out to me. I have two emails today that I'm looking at right now that are not specific to to our show. They're just sent to the general feedback. And both of them have emailed me, I'm guessing, two or three times. I've, I've not replied. Hope that all's well. We just wanted to follow up here again. Excited to let you know. Mm-hmm. You know that's how they always begin, and and at what point do, will they stop? Will they ever stop? Is there a real person? They're taking the time to mail merge my name into it, right? And there's no well, one subscribing. That, 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 that's the part. That's the part that's a little a little bit galling from a time and attention standpoint. Is that I don't begrudge the outreach coordinator whose job it is to contact people who for whom that might even be a good connection. Yeah. Like, you know, we ask people for money for advertising. I understand how the world operates to some extent. I'm sure people could explain it to me. But uh, but I get I get that. It's just that if I haven't, you know, my not responding is an answer. That's an answer. You, you, you contacted me about this thing that you stand to gain something from and I stand to gain little from. Mm-hmm. And I didn't respond to that. And that's an answer. The answer is I'm not responding. Right? That's, it's, that, that's, that's a, an answer. And that's a perfectly valid answer. But at, at what point... Do you think that they will get the hint? And we're not talking about when like an actual listener writes No, we're not in, talking about a person right. who says, no, we're not, that's not what we're talking right. about at all. No, no, no. It's more like, what do we got? We got the avid listener uh, from, for, who's written us four, I think four times now yes. uh, to have their person on the show. Yes. Somebody asked us if our audience has a, a sustainable edge and they have somebody on who could talk to us about that. Well, the funny, the, the funny f- part. The former child star turned deal maker yes. who wants to be on the show. That's a good one. The avid listener just struck me as so funny because that came days after the last episode where we talked about this type of thing. So if they oh, are oh, an avid oh, listener, absolutely. it's just weird. 
No, no, no. I know. I'm totally with you. That one, that one was extra funny to me. And here's the, here's the triple funny part is I have been going through our feedback. Uh, actually, I had some stuff that I wanted to talk about today, but I don't think we'll have time from listener Gabriel and listener, listener Jim. So, you know, the thing is I, I go through all, I reread all the email that we've gotten in the last usually month to go back through and see if there's anything that'd be fun to talk about on the show. This is a thing I do every Tuesday morning. And I found, thank you, listener Gabriel presence of mind. And thank you, listener Jim, talking about future self, two things I'd, I'd still like to talk about. But that's that's the reason I do it. I do it because people who listen to the goddamn show have suggestions, and we love that. <laughs> that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about this guy. who We're avid listeners, and I'd love to give you more information on such and such thing in hopes you consider him as a guest. And then you saw my... I mean, then, so, we, we joke with each other. Yeah, yeah, this guy's obviously an avid listener. Huge fan. Then he wrote back, what's funny is, like literally this morning, his email was up and I was looking at it and steaming a little bit. And he wrote back in to say, hey guys, just checking in to see if such and such person would be a good fit. Hoping to hear back soon and potentially make some moves in 2016. Mm, let's do it. And what, and what did I write back? What did you I write? Said, I said, friend, avid listener, in 250 plus episodes, we've never had a guest on the show. It's not a thing we do. Thanks, Merlin. And he told me to have a good year. So that's nice. Oh, so he actually, that, that worked. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't want to be, I don't want to be unkind, but it's the funny part is like, you know what it is when I get like douchey spam, uh, I don't know why this matters to me. This shows you what a small person I am. When I get douchey generic spam about a Russian lady who wants to ram a lemma ding dong, like I don't really think too much about it because I know it's just an algorithmic programmatic blah, blah, blah spit out a thing for some reason it does bug me when somebody somebody uh all the great shows me that bugs me all the great shows yeah yeah but what a terrible way to end this episode we should end with something affirming oh my god we've been doing this for an hour and a half dan yeah life we do life affirming affirming show life affirming show well you know you gotta get another second of course all right well let's do some follow-up all right Uh, Ty Lambo. Ty Lambo. Ty Lambo writes to say, uh, listener Gabriel says, what are your thoughts on presence of mind? I mean, the concept as presented by people like Alan Watts living in the moment, it seems your philosophy is very compatible with this, but you somehow reconcile this with tracking and monitoring various markers, like sleep and activities. Listener Gabriel. I thought that was a good note. Mm -hmm. Do you have a thought on that presence of mind? I mean, (laughs) presence of mind, appropriate attention are synonymous to me. And if you, if you were to look up appropriate attention, like skillful, right? Again, that word skillful comes skillful. Um, I, I've been looking for this quote. There was apparently a Zen master who did he make chocolate? Dan did not. No, who, uh, who did not make chocolate and apparently they made home cleaning supplies. Like he was one of the foremost, uh, Zen masters that was out there and had been a teacher and meditated his whole life and everything. And on his deathbed, he was asked, what is, what is the one thing that you would tell, you know, all students of, of Buddhism and Zen and meditation? What, what is, what is the one message or the one thing that you would want to, to pass down of your mastery of all of this? And he said, appropriate attention. And I think of that as like, presence of mind. I think of that as mindfulness. I think of that as like the one thing and appropriate attention because it's easy, especially if you get into the whole mindfulness thing. If you get, if you, if you get into that, 
it's very easy to kind of get in a way, and, and I suppose there's worse things that you could get sucked into. But it's if you get serious about that practice, it's very easy to get sucked into the concept of of being mindful. And a lot of people get confused when they hear the the term in this being in the present moment. People think, yeah, the present moment that means like living life and just enjoying every moment. That's exactly not what it means. Yeah, they think it's like some kind of a, a guy, v, guy Fieri thing. Yes, uh, yes, Ooh. yes, and it's it's not that. It's not the I just jumped out of a plane and it's exhilarating and I'm totally alive right now. It's it's not that. It's um, it's having that the presence of mind or being able to have the right kind of attention for the situation that you're in, for the circumstances that you're in, for the things that are expected of you. It's being able to shift the kind of attention that you're paying and where you're putting that attention to the task at hand and even if you should be performing the task at hand. So I think this does it, how off base am I with I don't think you're that? off base. I think so appropriate attention is that the phrase you use? Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> I think what's interesting about that is that there's a whole lot of handles on that suitcase. Uh, just those two words, appropriate. Uh, is this the right amount? Is this at the right time? Appropriate can mean a lot of different things, which I, and I realize that's probably a translation to begin with. And attention can actually mean lots of different things. So what, what makes appropriate attention interesting is at the most basic level, to me, that would seem to be, um, are you giving, are you giving a given thought or thing the right amount of attention? Which I think makes sense. So in other words, are you dwelling on something, right? Are you, are you obsessing over something? Are you, uh, as they say, ruminating? Um, which I learned over the, over the holiday break. You know that, that, rumin- that comes from the idea of a cow chewing its cud. Did you know that? Really? No, I didn't. So my, my daughter was explaining cow stomachs to me and how it's not actually <laughs> true that cows have seven stomachs, that they actually have different chambers. Oh. But that the idea is that the cow can eat this food, it goes down into their stomach, gets moved around, and then it comes back up as cud, and they have to rechew it. So it's, it's a total cow hack. Like a bunch of the nutrients, some of the nutrients can come out in that first pass. Then it has to come back up as cud. The reason they chew their cud is that that breaking it down at that point is what enables different kinds of nutrients to be pulled out. I had never known that. I never knew what it meant. And that's called ruminating. And so when we're ruminating on, on an idea... Chewing our, chewing our cud. Well, yeah. Well, when we're being ruminative, that means that we're taking something that was already in there. We're kind of rechewing it, rethinking it mm. so in that way. But rumination can also mean uh, obsessing, maybe. Ruminating can mean that you're giving way too much attention to something. And then what does that mean when you give too much attention to one thing? Well, let's again, let's all be dummies together. What does that mean? Well, that means now there may be other things you're not paying enough attention to. How do you know which things those are? You don't because you're not paying attention to them. That's what makes this complicated. So I think, I think, boy, there's a million ways to think about that and a million ways to overthink that thing. My only thought, uh, listener Gabriel, on the actual presence of mind idea, uh, thing I've noticed in myself and I think it's true in a lot of people is that when everything's going okay, you don't have to think because everything's going okay. It's when things aren't going well that I think we tend to think a lot. Do you know what I mean? Like if you're having fun, you know, this is basic, you know, this is old school, you know, Buddhism, right. but like w- when everything's going okay, you don't notice things like the passage of time. You don't notice what you're thinking about because you're 
you're stimulated in a way that's positive. It's when things don't go well that we start thinking about things like presence of mind. I think the real challenge is to get good at whether that's meditation or presence of mind or appropriate attention or, uh, you know, filing your email or whatever it is becomes important to you. I think it's important to remember to do that um, when, when things are going well as well as when they're not. Which I think it's hard to do. Do you know what I'm saying, Dan? I know exactly what you're saying. And Nobody thinks about losing weight when they're in the best shape of their right. life. You think about losing weight when you feel like you weigh more than you'd like. Or put differently, that you're not as healthy as you'd like to be. Sure. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, because we have this tendency to put things into one of three buckets. The buckets are neutral, where we don't care either way, it's fine, or good or bad. And if something falls into the good category, we cling to it because we don't want it to end. If something falls into the bad category, we reject it because we think it shouldn't be that way. And if things are in the neutral category, we can pretty much just ignore them. Yeah, but the, I, I think that's actually, that's, I'm sure that's accurate from, from this, the text, but I think you can even make it as simple as two buckets, which is, I really want this to happen. Or I really don't bucket, want this to happen. <laughs> and I really don't want this to happen <laughs> right. in this bucket. And I mean, depending on what that is and what your comportment is as a person and a thinker, like you, you might be amazed how often you're thinking in one of those buckets. I think that's what the presence, the presence of mind part means. Like I'm just here and like in a certain kind of, a certain notion of, you know, basic uh, beach chair uh, mindfulness is just this idea that just because I'm experiencing, yes, thank you. First time this year I've used that word. If it, just because I'm feeling a feeling, just because I'm thinking a thought, just because something has happened that's causing me to feel one way or another doesn't have to change anything. I don't, I don't have to react to a thought. I don't have to react to a feeling. And I certainly don't have to amplify it in order to feel it so strongly enough that something in the world changes. And that's, you know, I think that's an important thing to keep in mind. I don't know. Do you want to weigh in on the the secret? Oprah Oprah Winfrey's secret? Do you want to weigh in on Oh, yeah, tell me about the secret, Dan. How does that work? Well, I don't don't know much about the secret. Hmm. I was hoping you could walk me through it. I'm trying to find a really good Kurt Vonnegut quote. About the secret. <laughs> About the secret. Yeah. 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 Uh, from his book, A Man Without a Country. I, I printed this on a piece of paper. I just haven't brought it to work yet. Kurt Vonnegut says, And I urge you to please notice when you are happy and exclaim or murmur or think at some point, if this isn't nice, I don't know what is. Mm. Isn't that a lovely thought? Smart guy. I urge you to please notice when you are happy. And exclaim or murmur or think at some point, if this isn't nice, I don't know what is. What a lovely thing to start saying to yourself. Because that's what we don't do. What we don't, what we don't do is go, wow, this is good. Or this is nice. Or this is not terrible. What we do is we go, ugh, this sucks. You know? Right. We're, we're, we're ready to complain and we're much less ready to observe. We're, we can very easily observe when something is not how we think it should be. And we're, it's very easy for us to talk about the kind of suffering that we're enduring during that time until it's resolved. But it seems very easy to forget to to do what he's saying in that quote, which is like, yes, some things suck sometimes, but what about the times that are good? What about just sitting there? I remember a therapist once said to me, um, you know, when I was when I was talking about something, oh, okay. We had a, a neighbor, a neighbor problem. And I think the neighbor problem was either really, really noisy kids or really loud dogs or something like that. And 
I remember talking to her about how it was stressing me out and I was talking to her in her office about it and I was stressed out about it because even though I wasn't anywhere near the dog and or whatever it was, and even though the dog might not be there that night or be a problem that night, that it was still stressing me out during the day because I was I was thinking about it. Because you're anticipating. What if the dog is there tonight? Like, what if it's going to be there tonight? And what will I do about that then? And what what if it's not there when I'm eating dinner, but then after dinner it is there? Like all of this kind of, you know, sort of sort of uh, spiral of doom, uh, as my wife calls it. And, you know, and she's like, well, right now it's not happening at all because you're here. And if it happens later, you'll deal with it then. And there's not really much you can do about it then. And there's certainly not anything that you need to do about it right now. And right now you can kind of focus on your butt in the chair. And that's, that's what's going on right now, you know, and it's amazing how real we can make that though. Right. It's like uh, in that anxiety talk, the Andrea Fella talk from Insight Meditation. Love her. Where she, yeah, yeah. I listen. I still listen to that thing frequently. That where you talk about the, the she talks about the painter. I know it's an analogy. The painter who made such a realistic painting of a tiger that you know he ran out of the room because he was so scared. And I, I think we can really do that to ourselves. <laughs> I know I do it to myself because you create something that it all it all sort of happens within your brain. I don't know about you. But having a kid completely changed my tolerance levels for not just, not just, you know, kid noise, but just noise and distractions and things like that in general. That I was, I was, and we've talked about this, I was the guy in the restaurant who's not only could the meal, would the meal be ruined? The meal would be ruined. The night would be ruined. The day would be ruined. The restaurant itself potentially ruined if some parents were, you know, uh, awful enough to let their kid get out of their chair for a minute and run around and and bang the spoon on someone else's table, mine, someone else's, or kick kick the chair. Yes. (laughs) Right? You go into like full on lemon grab mode. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And and now, (laughs) now with the two children that I have, both of whom seem to always be fighting and yelling and they love each other, but even even their their friendly playing is loud and involves screaming and bumping and things getting broken and uh i'm i'm you know like i have been on a flight where the person i was sitting next to was so annoyed and frustrated and angry by the fact that there were kids you know kicking the seats behind us it it made me feel like I was home. It was relaxing to me. It was fine. It was perfectly oh, I, fine. I, I, it's, it's, it's amazing how that can change over time. It's unbelievable. And I, I remember my friends who had a kid whose kid was crazy and making all this noise. And I'm like, how do you deal with it? And they're like, oh, you just, you just eventually, I'm like, I'll knit. Ne- I'm sorry. I'll never be able to get not annoyed by this. And now it's like, it's fine. And I can be in a restaurant. A kid comes over, eats a French fry off my plate. I'm like, take a couple more. It doesn't bother me at all. Like it really doesn't. There's no part of me that's bothered by any of that. And, you know, when you, when you think about that type of thing and I look back at myself, I'm like, what was my hang-up about that? Like, why did it bother me so much? But it really did, you know? But it's also weird how, like, you hear about somebody else who has something that 
any third party would say, well, that's a similar kind of hang up. And you can't understand that at all any more than they can understand that you are how you are. Right. Right. We had we had really uh, I shouldn't get into this. But at one point we had neighbors upstairs that were that I considered to be very loud to where I thought they were intentionally like ridiculously loud and sound stuff started to set me off. And I, and I'm not actually that sensitive to sound. We live in a very quiet neighborhood, but I know what you mean. We're like, that had never been a thing I would freak out about. If anything, I was the source of the noise in the past, (laughs) but like, you know, for a long time, I, I, I despised these people. I just, I hated them because I, I, I couldn't see any way clear. I couldn't see any way in which they were doing anything but deliberately trying to ruin our lives all day. Right. If you only know people by the sound of their shoes, it starts to be all you can think about. That becomes this metonymy for like their entire existence is the clanking and the clunking of the shoes. And you're like, there's, there's no way you could live up there. You could never live up there right. unless you were deliberately, you know, you've got to be deliberately. And the thing is, though, we moved and it changed. And actually, not long after that, I moved into my office we had very, very loud people with kids over my head, and it didn't bother me anymore. Right. Because I didn't have the neighbors at home anymore. It just didn't bother me right. anymore. And I, I, can't ex- I can't exactly explain why, except that I'm insane, just like all of you are. <laughs> uh, no, because it, you're right. Like, in our, in our previous office here, we were adjacent to a pediatric dentist. <laughs> right. And right, right, uh, right. I think we've talked about this a little bit, but the... One corner of the office that we had was the the adjoining wall was directly next to their exam room. So, you know, in in a given day, they might have 15, 20 patients come through there, all of whom were in small single digit ages. And adults can get pretty upset when they're going to a dentist. But first time kids or second, third, fourth time kids, even just for the exam, so it was typically, you know, slightly muffled through the wall, but the walls in office buildings are typically not soundproofed or insulated. So it's almost like you're right there in the room. You would hear these kids just screaming bloody murder in there and you'd have, you'd hear the doctor and you could recognize his voice. Super nice guy, just kind of slightly muffled, just it's all right. All right. Let's count to three. One, two, three. See, that wasn't so bad. You know, you hear that and then you hear the kids screaming. And my desk was right up against that wall. Oh, my God. And, but you're bracing for it. You must be constantly bracing for hearing it. Never bothered me. Never bothered me. Didn't, it didn't ever once interrupt my train of thought at all. And the other people who are in my office, you know, feet away from it, 10, 10 feet away from it, they you you'd hear the kids start screaming and they'd like put be putting on their headphones now now they've got to have music on they've got to have something else on because this was so distracting to them 10 15 feet away from it that they were unable to work with that sound yet i'm but pressed all, up against to it so yeah, it doesn't so bother different. me at all i know it is i'm not saying that they have a problem i'm just saying like sound of people chewing right right it's actually not that loud but you can't <laughs> unhear it once you've decided, once something, once you, once you're bothered by someone going like, how about this one? You like this? I'm certainly have it. Like once somebody in your office starts drinking like that, you want to kill them. Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. all you will ever hear now is that person, and you spend your whole day just waiting for. There was one guy who used to clip his fingernails at his desk into his trash can. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that like tick yep. sound that like every day i don't like, know how he had so much nail 
that he was able to do it daily, but it, it would happen almost every day. Yeah. You know, but little things like that, like, why do they, why do they bother us? Why do they bother us so much? Well, you know, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure there's, there must be some kind of like human, like and some anthropology for how we develop the way that we do. You at least got certain kinds of animals, got the eyes on the side of their head, others that have eyes in front, where your ears, owls are that way for a reason. There are probably certain things that made us suited for survival in a certain way that do not make it ideal for us to be in an office with other people yeah, all day. Yeah. I don't think we have time. So thank you to listener Gabriel for that. I don't think we have time for listener Jim because this is getting really freaking long. Mm. But uh, listener Jim in the future self, I will put that in for uh, next time. Uh, does that work for you? I love that. That'd be perfect. This is a, this is a very, very, very weird show. It's been our I, best. I, like all of them, I think you should probably not put it out. All right. We'll be back. We'll be back next week whether people want it or not. <laughs> That's right. You can't stop us. No way. Don't even need a reason. Wow. Yeah, the same thing when just... Due to the gopher. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's button this up. I love, love you. Love you too, Merlin Man. <laughs>